Hello and welcome to another episode of The Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bellotti, and I'm really excited today to talk about growth coming from a context of B2C into more of a B2B one. And so I'm joined by Wendy Liu, who is an engineering manager at Airtable. Wendy, thanks so much for joining. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So in this podcast, we cover all sorts of growth topics and and all that. And the reality is that growth in B2B and B2C is very different. And while Wendy is currently engineering manager at Airtable, she comes from Pinterest. So I thought this would be an amazing opportunity to talk through what that transition from a like pure B2B or B2C type play into more of a B2B growth program and role looks like from her perspective. So Wendy, why don't you give a quick rundown on your background and we'll go ahead and jump in. Yeah. My name is Wendy Liu. I lead growth engineering at Airtable. We're a low-code platform for building apps for teams, and our mission is to democratize the creation of software apps. My background is in engineering, so I grew up in the Bay Area, studied CS at Stanford, and got my start working at a few companies here in the Valley. I ended up getting really into mobile when the industry was kind of pivoting from more of a web-first product approach to more of a mobile-first approach, and ended up joining Pinterest in 2013 as an early member of their mobile team. So there I got to work with a lot of talented people, also got to work on a wide variety of areas, including growth. And for growth, that was mostly on user onboarding and user activation, and also monetization, which for Pinterest was obviously advertising. So when the company started focusing on advertising around two to three years into my time there, I started putting most of my energy into this area and eventually led an organization responsible for ad formats and e-commerce ads at Pinterest. Amazing. Quite a fun lineup of things to work on. So I gave a bit of a tee up for the episode topic, and I'm excited to dive into like the strategies and tactics and all that. But before we do that, I think it would just be really useful to set some like high level business model context of the comparison between Airtable and Pinterest. So everyone just has like a foundation for thinking of what those different worlds look like and you know what translates and what's doesn't. So why don't you give us a quick rundown on that? Sure. Pinterest is a consumer discovery platform. It's focused on helping people discover things related to their interests. These can be any interests, but some of our larger verticals are food, home decor, fashion, beauty. And like many consumer products with a larger user base, Pinterest monetizes through advertising. And as mentioned, Airtable is primarily focused on B2B growth. So we're building a toolkit for teams to create solutions and apps that can grow with their businesses. So Airtable currently runs on a freemium model where we have a free tier that anyone can use and then several additional pricing tiers with more advanced features or usage. And as your role as engineering manager in either of those, like, is your core function to hit specific growth goals? Or is it more so to work with like the teams to enable those goals? Yeah, good question. So it's not a one size fits all job description, it can really vary quite widely based on the company and what's required at that point in the company's life cycle. I will say that all growth and monetization teams that I've been on have been responsible for specific business goals, be that revenue, active users, or engagement. But it really does depend on the needs of the company at the time. So I would say first and foremost, kind of building the team, growing the team, ensuring that the team has what it needs to execute well, and communicating across up and down is kind of a given for any EM role. 
And then depending on the point in the company's life, you may need to do more technical work, more product strategy and planning, or various types of process or or execution work. And I know that as we'll dig in the tactical work of the types of stuff that you and the teams are focusing on differ between the B2B and the B2C context, but does the core engineering manager role differ between them or is it mostly the same in terms of that structure? I think the responsibilities are are the same, but the tactics can change depending on where the company is and how it needs to operate. So for example, for a company very early in its growth life cycle, there may be a lot of like low-hanging fruit, small experiments you can run. And the way you kind of plan and execute around that type of work is much different than a company that is ready to take more of a strategic focus in a few areas. So I would say the responsibilities and the end goal is the same, kind of building and developing individuals and ensuring that the team executes well. But the types of tactics and processes you take can differ. And when you switched over to working at Airtable, was there any particular thing that you very rapidly learned that was just like so different from how the growth function operated at Pinterest? Yeah, there are a lot of things. I think when going from a consumer business to a B2B business, you kind of have an idea in your head about what a growth team should do and how you should operate. And there are some things that you almost have to unlearn in the context of a B2B business. So for example, All growth teams pride themselves on understanding user psychology. And at Pinterest, that was a lot of user research, user interviews. I spent way too much time on the other side of those law and order style one-way mirror rooms that we use for user research. And in the same way that consumer teams need to be really dialed in with users, I think B2B growth teams need to be extremely in tune with sales and marketing. And many times they actually have marketers within them. So for example, our team works with an email marketer on the team embedded with our within our organization. And it's really useful because a huge percentage of experiments have some email marketing component to them. But going back to your, your original question, at Pinterest, when we looked at user activation and retention, it was very much about helping users build the habit that we want them to and reduce, reducing all friction to that action. So for Pinterest, that habit was saving a pin to a board. Obviously, on Pinterest, there are more things you can do than that. But one of our biggest wins was that during a user's onboarding phase, actually stripping out every single action except for that one feature. And only once the user had completed that flow did we start introducing back the other features. But it was very focused on in-product experiences and doing everything we could to reduce friction. I think at a B2B company, you succeed with a combination of these self-serve growth tactics coupled with sales motions. So for example, at Airtable, one of our biggest wins was how do we proactively push what we call human-in-the-loop interactions for customer onboarding? And by human-in-the-loop, I'm talking about connecting users with our sales team, our support team. We have an onboarding specialist team that does complementary setup for larger accounts, especially for a product that's more innovative and might not match what users have seen before. If I'm a new user setting up a workflow for my team in Airtable, I might give up and I might not know if I'm doing things correctly, but knowing that I have live support there and a live human to help can get me over that initial hurdle and can be the difference between whether I activate or not. Okay, so there's a couple things there that I want to peel the layers back on. One quick, like slight tangent from something that you had mentioned was the email marketer operating within the growth team. 
We had one of those on our team for a while, and I'm interested in just like the structure of it. Was that email marketer reporting to someone on the product side, or were they still reporting over to the marketing team? They just like had goals that were tied to the growth team. Yeah, at Airtable, our growth org is all under one GM, which is Darius Contractor. And within that organization, there's a product arm, a engineering arm that reports to me, and then email marketing. Got it. Okay, so you have a whole, it's all like fully encompassed in the growth org. Correct. Yes. And we're a very small team still. So, you know, it is essentially just one team. Yep. Okay, so on the alignment with sales and marketing. Now I come from a mainly B2B type background. So I'm pretty used to the alignment that the growth team has to have with sales and marketing. And I I always kind of just like figured that as a bit of a given, but it would seem like, as you mentioned, the human in the loop is something that you actively thinking about here, where in B2C, I would presume that it's like the polar opposite of that, right? Like you want the human in the loop as little as possible because of how much volume your product is going through in terms of like users and actions and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. That being said, at a B2B company, it is still a combination of the two. It's still a combination of self-serve growth plus sales motions. So the first part of that equation is still important. And you still really do need to focus on the product experience as you do at a consumer company. I think traditional enterprise sales used to be go to IT or procurement, ask for their budget. Magically, that budget matches how much your product costs. And you end up with these really long sales and procurement cycles And you also end up with very complex products. So you have product teams that are incentivized to add more knobs to the product so that these teams can sell more value and extract more dollars. And the products become very fragmented because they're built around adding as many features as possible versus thinking about the holistic user experience. We're lucky enough today, both you and I, to be part of this bottoms-up SaaS movement. So instead of marketing to an IT department or a centralized buyer, we're now marketing directly to the end user. So for example, a team can decide we want to use Slack or we want to use Figma, they can put in their credit card and they can just start using it. And I think that opens up a lot of opportunity where, similar to a consumer company, the end user experience is still very important for that initial traction. And also with this bottoms up motion, you don't need every team in a company to be using a certain product. So you can land one to two teams in a company, build champions within the organization, and use these champions to acquire the department and eventually, hopefully, a whole company. And I'm really curious about this because I presume in the B2C, like the way that the engineers are thinking and you're encouraging them to think are all rooted in the volume of users taking that specific action, kind of what you talked about earlier, or maybe the ad revenue that comes out the other end. Like, how do you think about getting the engineers involved in in this more heavily sales motion, right? Like it's a whole other layer of thinking for the engineers, right? Whereas I've worked with engineers that kind of think like, why are we involving sales folks at all? Like we should just automate every single part of this. So how do you think about the balance between like that sort of perspective and the, this is a partnership in sales and we have to like enable them to get the outcomes they want? The way I thought about it is essentially as an optimization problem. And your optimization problem has three variables. You have your interaction, your user, and your moment in product. 
the first variable is the type of customer interaction. So say I'm a SaaS company and my company has a few different types of customer emotions. So let's say we have sales calls, we have live chat with our support team, and then we have some sort of onboarding call or webinar. So that's my set of available interactions. My second variable is my user. And about this user, I have certain signals. So I have first party signals. What did the user do on my site? What pages did they visit? Maybe they indicated their use case during onboarding. And then I also have third party signals. So I can use services like Clearbit to enrich my user data and get information about their role, their industry, what technologies does their company use. So the user is my second variable. And then my third variable is a moment in product. So this could be during onboarding. It could be after the user visits the pricing page for the first time, maybe after they first add a collaborator to their workspace. So with these three variables, interaction, user, and moment, you can then treat these as inputs to your model. So you can literally apply a machine learning model, or you can test combinations of heuristics to figure out for any given user, what is the best interaction and what is the optimal place and time to present them with that interaction. And what your model is optimizing for can be anything. Obviously, most of the time it's revenue, but it can also be user engagement or user activation. And on top of that, you also have capacity as an input to this problem. So you can scale up and down your thresholds depending on the capacity of your sales team. So you're literally building out machine learning models that, is it a model that changes the customer interaction as they go? Or is it more of a model for you to determine like where to make your team investments? Yeah, it's more of the latter. We can talk about the former too when we t- if we talk about lead scoring, but it's more of a growth model or strategic model or strategic framework of thinking that helps us understand where to prioritize our investments. Yep. So let's say that I'm listening to this podcast and I'm saying, all right, that seems cool, right? It seems like it could help us a lot by by building out that sort of model. Like, where does someone start? Like, how do you begin thinking about this and building out this sort of system? I would say, first of all, to figure out your constraints. So are you supply constrained or are you demand constrained? So do you have too many leads for your customer teams to handle? Essentially, you're operating over capacity or are you needing more people in that funnel? If you're supply constrained, then things like lead scoring or using more signals to qualify your leads, and there are a few ways we can do this, which we can talk about. If you're demand constrained, you want to invest more in in product experiences or different types of outreach to feed that funnel. And so you had mentioned about lead scoring as a function to know like if you're more supply constrained or demand constrained. And how how do you think about lead scoring on top of it. Because generally in the B2B world where where a growth team doesn't exist, lead scoring is only a topic that the sales org and the operations org are thinking about. Like how, how do you think about it from an engineering perspective as you know, as that additional layer on top of what you're doing here? Yeah, of course. So lead scoring, there are a few different ways you can do it. You can do it in-house, right? As You can even apply machine learning models, or you can use services like MadKudu to set that up pretty easily. Tactically, I would suggest someone aim for simpler heuristics over more complex models to start. And the reason is that your reps are human, and they're going to be delivering a very personalized interaction to a person on the other end who is also human. So if all your model does is take in a dozen factors and spit out a score between zero and one, then your rep is going to have no context into why this person was surfaced and how they can best tailor that 
that interaction. And I think that is one of the, the dangers of an engineering team working with a sales team if the collaboration is not very tight-knit. So I would say start with something your reps can understand. And furthermore, this is probably going to be something that you need to be able to communicate throughout the company and probably across org lines, as I said. So when starting a new initiative, I always like to ask myself, is this something that I can explain in 15 seconds or less to anyone in the company just in a hallway conversation? If it's not, either because it takes too long to explain or is too technical to explain, then maybe I need to take a step back and think about how I can simplify it just as the effort gets started. Then once you have a good system in place, you can think about improving it with more complex models. And even then, if you are using a model, which may be more opaque, it's still really important to surface the inputs to that model. So making sure you give your reps as much context as possible into why this person was scored highly and how they can best tailor their interaction with the customer. So this is really interesting to me because we went through a similar thing at Drift where we on the growth team were using an a machine learning model to drive the lead scoring. And I'd be interested to hear if you're, if you like fully built it in house or if you're using another tool for it, but we were using another tool for it that like, instead of building our own completed model. And then one of the things that you said, which we missed was making sure to surface all the inputs for the score. Otherwise, because I mean, we, we would build this score and it was this wonderful you know, lead scoring system that would take all those inputs that you were talking about plus more. But the problem was it was just like so opaque. That was a good word that you used there. It was so opaque to them that they were looking at it, looking at it and, and saying, I'm used to operating off of knowing these like five things are the reason I should talk to this customer because then I can lean on that in the sales process. How am I supposed to lean on anything if you're just telling me like this person might buy, right? So for us, that that was something that we totally whiffed on. And so is this like a full in-house model? So we do have a big work stream this quarter around what you just talked about, which is surfacing the right data to our reps. So this is involving how do we augment the tools that they use, you know, SFDCs, Zendesk, et cetera with all the signals that could possibly help them as they're performing the interaction. In terms of modeling, we are starting to explore some lead scoring both internally and third-party. Last quarter, we invested a lot in in product experiences to help feed the funnel. So how do we help users connect with our sales teams during critical moments in product? So again, looking at what are the moments in product where users tend to struggle, for example, maybe importing data, or maybe it's configuring one of their more advanced field types. And how can we surface interactions at that time to help users get over that hurdle? Okay, so you have these inputs that define the moments to bring in a human in the loop. How do you go about identifying what those are? Like, do you start with qualitative and then you dig into the numbers? Do you start by just pulling as much data as you can and identify certain moments? Like for someone that's listening that says, I want to build this type of type of model to, to drive our systems, like where do I start and how do I go through that process? Yeah, so it's both qual and quantitative data that we use. We are lucky that we have a very tight-knit relationship with our sales teams and our customer teams. So we conduct a lot of interviews. We chat with them weekly to figure out from their experience running all of these calls and all of these interactions, what have they found to be the highest leverage moments or the moments where the users struggle most and where they need the most help. So we do start with that. 
And then the second step is digging into the data. So we did quite an in-depth analysis looking at what we call struggle moments and high intent moments. So struggle moments could be the user starts something, but they don't finish or they don't activate. And high intent moments are just you know, things that the user does in product that indicates high intent, for example, visiting the pricing page or the upgrade flow. And pulling all of those moments and looking at the correlation of those with the eventual metric we care about, which for us at the time was four-week activation or four-week retention. And through that, you can kind of get a sense of like, okay, if a user completes this moment, then they're really likely to activate down the road. You do have to be careful with not confusing correlation with causation there. So there is some aspect of understanding that that aspect as well. And you know, you do have to apply some additional logic on top of that so that you're not confusing correlation with causation. Got it. So to change gears a little bit, how do the core goals for the Airtable growth teams look? Like what is everyone optimizing for, right? We we talk through, you have the lead scoring layer that you can put on top of it. You have the human in the loop type interactions and you have the ultimate outcome of revenue. Like h- how do you think about distilling which thing any one of your engineers or folks on the growth teams are thinking about? Yeah, so the stages of the growth funnel still apply. So our teams are optimizing for acquisition or signups, activation, retention, and monetization. So it is the exact same thing as it is at most companies, but just with sometimes different tactics. I would say the most widely communicated metrics for us currently are four-week activation or four-week retention, however you want to think about it, as well as monetization and ARR. Okay. And what about like that focus there has allowed you to pull on those, you know, prior experiences at Pinterest and, and other places? Like what, ex- what things explicitly hold true between the context of all those different business models? I think that having an early and vocal user base who just absolutely love the product is something that's held true. And I think both Pinterest and Airtable have had this. And these are your users who are going to evangelize the product. They're going to give you feedback. They get so excited with each new feature release. And creating a company culture where you share those stories to help teams understand who they're building for, not just at a metrics level, but at a really personal level where I as an engineer can imagine myself in the shoes of a user. I think that's something that's often overlooked, but really important. And in the same vein, user research. So so we talked about user research a bit before. And obviously at Pinterest, being a larger company, our user research function was a very well-oiled machine where it was very easy for any feature just to kind of request user research and get that set up within a matter of weeks. Obviously at Airtable, being a smaller company, we are just ramping up our user research function. But even before we had that, Sometimes here, our engineers just did user research. So our engineers have gotten really good at reaching out to users, conducting interview sessions, and then bringing the learnings back to their team to inform what they build. I think what doesn't apply is that the metrics baselines are much different. So for a B2B company, people are usually coming to your product to solve a certain need or pain point. And At certain consumer products, you could also think of them coming in to solve a need, but often it's less of an immediate business need and more of an entertainment or a leisure-focused need. For a B2B company, the user coming onto your site probably has a specific pain point to solve. So they might need a better way to manage their team. Maybe they want to automate a manual workflow. A surprising number of people probably sign up because their manager told them to do it or they see another team in the department doing it. 
But if they do visit, they are probably more incentivized to begin with to sign up. So the baselines are much different. Where at a consumer social company, 30% might be a really, really good 12-month retention rate. Where at a bottoms-up SaaS company, you're going to be wanting to see net revenue retention above 100%. And at an enterprise SaaS company, probably even higher than that. So how does the, the intent of those users between those different models, like you are saying, B2B, you're generally showing showing up with more of a specific intent in B2B, it's or B2C rather, it's sometimes a lot more passive. Like how does knowing that that is the case, how does that affect or impact the way that you you and your teams think about acquisition experiments, right? Like how, how does it change how you approach acquisition, if at all? Yeah. So when you think about acquisition, there are generally a few different types of approaches. There's virality-based approaches, so things like invites and referrals. There's content-based approaches, so the users or the company create content. Those get pushed to the company's channels. That brings in more users, which then publish more content. And there's paid marketing, and then there's, and then there's sales. I would say that traditional virality-based strategies don't work as well for a B2B company. And the reason is that the product really doesn't get any better as you invite more people. There's some aspect of inviting your team at work. But beyond that, it's not like inviting my friends or inviting my family makes my experience much better on the product. It's not like LinkedIn where having 50 contacts versus five contacts makes the product experience much better. So while we do have virality-based features, I don't think that's going to be the bread and butter of how most SaaS companies acquire new users beyond just kind of standard word of mouth virality. I think a content-based strategy can work. So for example, Airtable this quarter is really focused on SEO and setting up the infrastructure for good SEO. And of course, the next step to that is how do we scale up our index content and the number of relevant landing pages we have and thinking about how to take user-generated content and company-generated content and scale that up. And I think what you said around the virality part is extremely important because this has happened on like all the teams that I've been on where there is this very strong desire to implement a referral system, even though you're in a B2B context. And I think it's because people have a tendency to see them work well in tons of B2C contexts like Pinterest and Uber and Lyft and Robinhood, right? Like referral systems work there, but it's just so fundamentally different in the way that the user operates that you almost kind of have to restrain yourself from using what feels like it works best and feels like makes your job easiest because it works at scale for these other places. Whereas like, you're probably just going to wind up wasting your time building that stuff out in more of a B2B context. Yeah, exactly. I think it really depends on the product. So thinking about is your product better as you invite more more people you're connected with or not? And then also, is the incentive enough, right? So for Dropbox, I think the referrals program actually worked quite well because there was an incentive of free space that for many users was enough to get them to send invites and to invite their friends. Many of the times for a B2B company, the incentive is not high enough because you know when work is paying for it, then sometimes it's not worth getting like the additional credits or the additional offers, right? Or the, the, the discounts. Right. Cause it's not coming out of your pocket. So kind of what's the difference if I, if I save my business a hundred dollars on this, you know, $40,000 thing. <laughs> right. 
Thanks, species. So you've been in this role with Airtable now for a little over half a year. And maybe to, to wrap up here, we can talk through some of what the toughest learning curves are, right? So I think, you know, we talked through some stuff that you, you know, you show up in a B2B context coming from B2C and you say, all right, well, this thing's obviously different. But what parts are the toughest ones to work through that have the biggest learning curves? Experimentation is a big one. So at most companies, the growth team is known for running experiments. I think a common cliche is that you change the color of a button from red to green, and that results in some percentage increase in conversion. And it actually does happen. I think at Pinterest, we changed the text of a button. The button used to say pin it, and we changed it to save. And even that resulted in some percentage increase in user activation. But the reason that these things happen is that with a really large volume of users in your in your experiment, you're able to de- detect very small increases, 2%, 1%, half a percent increases with statistical significance. And you can do that because you have millions or tens of millions of users signing up per month. At many B2B companies, you don't have hundreds of millions of users. It's a much smaller addressable market overall, and your product is likely focused on a specific use case or industry. So not only do you not have as many users to experiment with, but the conversion rate of what you're trying to move might also be very low. So you might have a freemium product where most of your users are free and some small minority are paid. Well, if you're trying to optimize the paid flow and you only have a few percentage points paid, then it might take months for you to get enough users to go through that flow to have a scientific result. Consumer companies can also have smaller volumes, especially when starting out, to be fair. But I would say that for B2B, even the larger and the later stage companies can have this issue. Is that tough to get used to? Like, I imagine you're just so used to knowing answers so much more quickly. And now you're switching into this world where like the lead times could be months on any given experiment. Yeah, I think the it is hard to get used to. And I think the lessons that I've taken away is, first of all, to take bigger swings. So traditionally in growth teams, you run a lot of learning experiments. So if I was building a feature at Pinterest, I might say, okay, let me run a series of four to five iterative experiments for the same feature over the course of two or three months. And my aim is to incrementally improve each one. And it's okay if the first few don't show positive results, because I can then just iterate further on it. For a B2B company, I might have to run an experiment for two months to even get that first set of results, especially for these less frequently visited surfaces. So it's really, really important that the first experiment that I run is the one I think has a good shot of moving the needle. And that means like doing the upfront work. So doing the data analysis, the user research upfront, instead of always taking this learning by experimenting approach. Right. You're you're moving from, let me get the answer by just doing it versus the investment in doing this is now 10 times bigger because of that lead time. So let's really, really be thoughtful around like, are we going to start with this? Yeah. So for example, at Pinterest, I might say, okay, I have a feature I want to experiment with. I could spend a week doing data analysis to inform what I think is the best approach, or I could just build it, run the experiment for a week and see. And in many cases, I might opt for the latter. At Airtable and many B2B companies, that might not be the best decision because now instead of running my experiment for one week, I might need to run it for eight weeks or more for some of the surfaces lower in the funnel. So in that case, it it is worth it to me to do that week of data analysis up front. And how do you think about 
the teams that in this B2B context where the lead times are much longer, how do you think about knowing, like, is this team doing a good job or not when it's going to be six months of experimentation before we actually know if the team is doing any good? (laughs) Yeah, good question. We do use a lot of leading indicator metrics. So for example, if your metric is four-week retention, figuring out what do users do before four weeks, that can be a predictor of that metric. You do have to be careful, again, to not confuse correlation with causation here. But for example, when talking about our human-in-the-loop work earlier, one of our leading indicators was the number of onboarding calls we did. So we could say, okay, a user who has an onboarding call is X percent more likely to activate. So theoretically, if we move onboarding calls by this amount, then we can back into our incremental activation rate increase. Of course, as we open up that top of funnel, we do expect intent to decrease. So we also take a haircut off that historical rate for the estimation purposes. And with using leading indicators, if my metric is four-week retention, hopefully I don't need to wait the full four weeks to get my first batch of results. I can start seeing more timely results, and that can help me make a decision of whether I want to continue with this work stream and help inform my next set of experiments. So those two things, I think, taking more educated swings and larger swings and using leading indicator metrics are things that I personally had to adjust to and things that I found work quite well. Makes a lot of sense. Any other things that are top of mind before we go ahead and wrap here? I would just say that growth engineering is awesome because it can really be as simple or as complex technically as you want it to. On the one hand, anyone can do it. You know, you don't need decades of experience to be good at growth engineering. As long as you're a good product thinker and you're good at taking a user psychology lens and data lens, you can find projects that make a huge impact. On the other hand, as growth teams scale up, there are more technical challenges that are like, you know, infrastructure based or recommendation based. So you could have notification systems optimizing for delivering notifications to hundreds of millions of users across different channels, you know, email, push and text. And that's basically building out an infrastructure system. You can also have real-time recommendation systems, which recommend users the best content in fractions of a second after the user signs up, which is a difficult problem both in machine learning and ranking, but also in scale and real-time processing of data and serving of content. So I would just say that, you know, this is these are reasons why growth engineering is really great. It can really be as simple as you want it to, but the possibilities are limitless. Love that. What a note to end on. Wendy, thank you so much for joining on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Matt. This was really fun. Absolutely. So for those of you that are still listening, I am going to say it again. I always say it. If you like this episode, there's plenty more that are like it. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button and check them out. If you've got any feedback, any ideas, whatever it might be, my email is matt at drift.com. If you're a fan, I would super appreciate a review. Feel free to reach out for anything at all. Thank you so much for listening. I know there's plenty of other things you could do with your time. So we really, really appreciate it. And I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.